Hey, this is Chris Mosier, and you are listening to Level Playing Field. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Level Playing Field Podcast. Level Playing Field is my podcast. My name is Randy Boos where I interview people who are LGBTQ and involved in sports. This week, my guest is Chris Mosier. I have wanted to talk to Chris for a very long time. Unfortunately, schedules never worked out. Um, when I went and joined the Outsports Network, I reached out again, and here we are. We talk a lot about Chris himself, a little bit about transitioning, but a lot about advocacy, advocacy in high school sports, in the Olympics, and we also talk about his new sport he's involved in, race walking. At the very end of this episode, you'll hear him talk about what he's doing next, and race walking is one of them. He's going to be attending the Olympic trials that'll be held in Southern California, and hoping to qualify for the 2020 Olympics, being the first trans athlete to compete in the Olympics. As you know, I like to keep my intro short, though, so without further ado, here is my chat with Chris Mosier. Hey, thanks again for coming on, Chris. I am so happy to have you on. My pleasure. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. Yeah, it's you've been someone I wanted to, to speak with for a long time, and... Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we finally connected. Yeah, let's do it. So let's start at the beginning. I think for for people who are transitioning, I think the for me one of the most important things is what was it like for you growing up? When did you first start to notice that something was was different than what you know what was different and the inside was different than the outside? You know where when did that start to become a thing for you? Mm. Yeah, so I always had a very strong sense of who I was as a kid, and it never really crossed my my mind about who I was not matching up with my peers um, until you know a little bit later in life. As a kid, though, I didn't you know didn't really think about it, and even now looking back, I have these moments, these very distinct memories when I was a kid of people telling me that I was quote unquote doing it wrong, right? Like that I was. I was performing my gender wrong and that I was doing things or liking things or expressing myself in clothing or in mannerisms or in activities in a way that wasn't fit for little girls. So I identify as a trans man. I was assigned female at birth and I grew up being raised and socialized as a little girl. And you know, I never had a strong association with my identity as a girl. I never felt like like I had, I had friends who being a, a little girl was a big part of their identities that, you know, playing princess and dressing up and doing these, these things that are very stereotypical, um, very stereotypically assigned and given to little girls by parents, right? Like no little girl is no, no child is born thinking that they have to play dress up and, and princess, right? But mm-hmm. adults tell little girls that that's what they're supposed to do. So I never felt that strong association with that. I never felt like drawn to those sort of activities. And I always just 
knew that I was unique. I knew that I was just me. And it wasn't until later on when people started to correct my behavior that I started to kind of question it. Um, but even then, I just didn't have the language or the terminology to say that I was trans or, you know, it, it didn't cross my mind because I didn't have the words for it. I didn't know anybody or see any examples of it. And I just knew that I wasn't like the little girls in my class. And I knew I wasn't like my brother and the little boys in my class. So I just tried not to think about it. Was it, I mean, you grew up in a time where you would probably have been just labeled tomboy and expected to grow out of it as you enter your teen years and, and late adolescence. Yeah. And that's exactly when it became sort of more of an issue, right? Like you're, you're right. So we have this real double standard even today, but definitely growing up in the eighties where a, a little girl could be a tomboy up until about puberty or, you know, after high school, and then they were supposed to change. And when it came to that point where, you know, everyone was kind of expecting me to grow out of it or force myself out of it and conform more with feminine presentation and be stereotypically, it's okay for little girls to be tomboys, but it's never, it's, it has never been okay for, for young boys to be more feminine. So there was this real double standard of expression that I kind of learned and picked up on. And when it came time to where people thought that I should have grown out of being that sort of tomboy and I didn't, um, you know, I, I don't know that it, people didn't really look at me differently or maybe they did. I don't know. I just didn't really think a lot, a lot about it. I think that one of my defense mechanisms in terms of protecting myself when I was in high school and in college was over-involvement. So I was involved in all the activities, all the sports, everything that I could do, plus I worked, anything that I could do to fill my time, I did it so that I had a lot of friends, I, I knew a lot of people, but no one knew me very well, mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't have time to invest in relationships, because I was so busy. And I didn't have time to think about my identity, because my identity was wrapped up in being a part of all these organizations and activities and, and jobs and things. So I really, for you know, about 10 years of my life, when you know, I was going into high school to a couple of years out of college, really just made myself so busy that I didn't think about my identity. So you know, back to the original question of like, when did I know? I really didn't even know. I didn't have the language to understand it until I was out of college. Yeah, it definitely wasn't talked about in the 80s and 90s. But I wonder, you know, being so busy, what about those moments when, you know, right before bed, right before your eyes close, was it, did it ever, you know, pop in your head and, and yeah, maybe you know, keep you up for a bit or? I, I, I definitely think that I, I thought that I was going to grow up to be a man, quite honestly. And when that, did, when that started not to happen, right, around puberty time, I, I really then was kind of faced with what I assumed was the crisis that all young people face when going through puberty. But for me, it was like really like praying that I wouldn't have a period and praying that I would just not have to go through that puberty. Uh, and when it didn't work out that way, I think that was really upsetting for me and really sort of troubling. And maybe that was maybe, you know, some early moments of recognizing like, hey, this, I don't know that every girl or woman feels like this. And maybe there's something to this. I have to be honest. I never thought about a trans male in periods. 
Is that? Yeah. That is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, sorry and, for my, like I said, I am a little yeah. ignorant in some things, so I don't, it's just something I, I would imagine that had to be, is it a depressing thing to happen? Uh, you know, I think it was one of the first moments where I was like uh, at odds with my body. Um, you know, that I, there is a trans narrative of being born in the wrong body and, and people feeling like just that, like they were born in the wrong body. And I would never describe my experience as that. I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, especially as an athlete now, my body is my machine. My body is my job. And so, you know, I am really grateful for what my body has done for me and continues to do for me. And I have a good relationship with it now. But I think, you know, those moments of like having a period and developing breasts were moments where I was like, well, wait a second, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. I, I thought that I was going to have the V-shaped torso and six-pack abs and, you know, flat chest. And that was really kind of what my childhood self envisioned me in the future. And mm -hmm. that really wasn't what was happening in those teenage years. You know, I spoke to Athena Del Rosario. She uh, plays soccer and beach handball. And she talked about self-medicating before she, she saw a doctor. Is that something that you ever contemplated or was that something that it didn't even enter your mind uh, when you're terms, teen years. Yeah. In, ter in terms of self-medicating, I mean, I guess I didn't really understand transition and, and what that meant uh, in those teen years. And even in my early twenties, I would say that I didn't just, again, it's, it's a pure lack of visibility and lack of examples for me to look to. Uh, I didn't see anybody who looked like me or like, and what I mean by that is, is look like the person who I thought that I was. And the one thing that I did do before actually understanding transition and committing to transition was uh, tried to do some sort of you know, natural supplementation to uh, you know, boost my testosterone or feel more masculine. And for, that was just kind of workout supplements that I was taking. And you know, I thought I actually used sport as, as a way of uh, sort of my, you could say, gender therapy before I had the terminology that I was trans before I you know, decided to transition and before I actually came out, I, I would go to the gym and try to lift weights. And you know, I wanted to slim down a little bit. I wanted my shoulders to be wider, my back to be wider. And I was trying to, you know, quote unquote, masculinize, uh, for lack of a better you know, way to phrase it, my, my body appearance. Uh, because the goal for me was I don't know at that time if it was to be called he, because I don't think that I was ready for that, but it was maybe to make people question or to be more androgynous and sort of um, in the middle of, a, of the gender binary. When you are competing pre-transition and you are competing against other females, what's going on in your head? You're seeing yourself as a male. Your goal is to be, to be more masculine, as you said. Are you seeing competitors and how, how, is, how are you processing that yeah you know i think there so there's this point right of of as a as a kid i had the little drawing of a six-pack abs from a muscle magazine on my closet door and i thought that's what i'm going to grow up to be and again at the same time i knew that i wasn't like my brother and that my path to being there probably wouldn't be the same as his but i just didn't have an understanding of how that would happen uh when i was playing basketball, volleyball, and softball in high school. 
it wasn't that I saw myself as a man. I, I, I just had no awareness at that time. I, but I didn't have a strong association with being a woman on a woman's team or a girl on the girl's team. Um, you know, if, if, to be honest, I, I did take pride in being a female athlete who could kick a man's ass. And I think that that was, you know, as a, as a high schooler, it, I took a lot of pride in being able to hold my own against any of the, of the men who played on our teams. And, you know, at the same time, I just didn't feel a, a strong association with being female. And even in college, um, while I had a better understanding that I wasn't a woman, I just didn't have the words for it. I, I chose not to play college uh, sports because I didn't want to be on a woman's team. And I didn't know that at the time that that was the reason. I made a ton of excuses, but that's really what it boiled down to, was just that I didn't want to be on a women's team. I didn't want a coach saying, hey, ladies, and let's go, girls. I just didn't think that that fit for me, but I could not articulate that to anybody else. And so you just gave up on sports completely? Well, I gave up on organized uh, sort of team sports. I participated in every intramural sport that I could do. Okay. So anything from uh, ultimate frisbee to soccer to volleyball, badminton, like anything that the school did that was co-ed, where I didn't have to go into the women's locker room and I could just you know show up and play. That's really what I what I started to do. And along with that, going to the gym and running and lifting weights was something that I could do on my own without having to um, you know be associated with a women's team. Was there ever a confusion with gender and sexuality for you or? I don't think so. You know, I, I think for me, they were very separate, uh, except for the fact that I didn't want to have close relationships with anybody because I didn't want people to really get to know me because I had a sense that the, what I was presenting to the world in high school and in college just really wasn't authentically me. So what would what would be the thing that brings you back to sports? So because you, know, you you would come back to sports before you transition, you start transitioning, right? Right, right. You know, I think I, as a kid, I had a lot of my identity wrapped up in being an athlete. And it was something that I started at a very young age and was was good at every sport that I played. And, you know, like that to me was part of my identity. It was it was actually the way that I made friends. It was the way that I found community. And those people became my family. At, at, at times when I felt uncomfortable off of a court or a field, and I wasn't sure about who I was in the classroom, for example, or in other spaces, I knew exactly who I was when I was playing sports. And I felt welcomed and included and uh, had friendships that I wasn't sure that I would be able to make if I didn't have that sort of shared goal of trying to win games. So I think it was that that I missed when I stepped away from sports in college and that's what I wanted to come back to is that sort of community and camaraderie that comes with playing uh, sports, even if it wasn't on a team. So my way of my way of sort of working around that was coming back into sports after college through running. Running was something that I could do right from my house, lace up my sneakers, be in my clothes, you know, go straight from the front door. But it was something that I could also be a part of a community. And you know, the running community is just incredible. No matter where you go in the United States. Uh, you know, when you find runners, they're just, it's something about being with like-minded people that is really has a strong pull for me. And, uh, you know, I think 
in in doing that activity, it doesn't matter one's identity, right? Like runners love other runners. And there was something that was really attractive about that. And that's really why I came back to sport is just I missed that camaraderie. I missed that community. And I wasn't finding it in other places. It's interesting, too, that running was a sport you that brought you back because it is a sport that it's individual, it's team. Um, even when you're practicing, though, you're you could really, you know, just snap on some headphones, get lost in music if that's what you do or whatever. So you would still have you still have that individuality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was a it was a safe place for me to kind of ease my way back into the sports community because like you said that you can you can do it alone and you can be as involved in a community as you want to be and i i really liked the option of both <laughs> you obviously have had success with being a, a what do you call it do athlete yep and triathlete you tended to more go towards the duathlon aspect of it which honestly until i knew I was going to talk to you. I didn't know that there was running, <laughs> biking, and then running again. Yeah. So let me just uh, quickly for the listeners, I'll say, uh, so triathlon is in the Olympics. Triathlon is a swim, bike, run event where you do all three back to back. And there are several different distances. There's sprint races. There's the Olympic distance that's in the Olympics, which is one of the, is one of the most common. And then there's a half iron and full iron distance uh, races. So People know the Ironman races, but duathlon is run, bike, run, and actually got into it because in New York City in the spring, it's too cold to get in the water. So there are a lot of these races that are part of the multi-sport umbrella, which would be triathlon, duathlon, aquathon, aquabike, and, and things that combine some variation of swim, bike, run. And these run, bike, run races were used as a tune-up race for triathletes in the Northeast. Um, and that's sort of how I was introduced to it. And it just ended up that running, I, I'm not a strong swimmer. That's my weakest area. And also my most uncomfortable area as a trans person of having to go to the pool and be in a women's swimsuit at that time and, you know, face all of the things that came along with swimming. So that's how I got into duathlon. Oh, okay. So part of it was transitioning. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think this it corresponded really with my awareness of myself, my identity, my gender identity, and I'm trying to think here. So my first triathlon was in 2009, and I transitioned in 2010. So I only did a year of triathlon as female, and I had been running all the way up until that point. So it was pretty early in my in my career. And I think that uh, my first duathlon was actually after I transitioned to male. But it was it came as a relief because I no longer had to uh, worry so much in on the in the swimming situation, right? So in the discomfort of going to the pool, of having to enter the pool through one of two locker rooms, both of which I felt unsafe in. You know, the the fear of having to show up presenting more masculinely on the outside and then wearing a women's swimsuit. And even after I had top surgery, you know, the fear of exposing my scars initially and having you know thinking that people were looking at me or, um, you know, there was, there was just a lot of body consciousness that I wasn't prepared to deal with and a lot of fear that I had about uh, what might happen in terms of physical safety in those spaces. And you, you bring up top surgery and I want to ask you something when, and speaking to 
trans females, either athletes I've spoken with or just people in the real world, <laughs> to to say it one way, trans females, their surgery, um, gender reassignment surgery is usually something that's not talked about. It's sort of taboo for someone to ask about it just because mm-hmm. it's personal. For mm-hmm. trans males, it seems like it's almost like a, a pride thing. You're proud of Am I seeing that right, or do you think that's a misunderstanding on my part? No, so I'll just you know start by saying not every trans person has surgery, and not every trans person wants surgery. Mm-hmm. So surgery surgery is not a requirement of being a trans athlete. And thankfully, after I challenged the international Olympic policy in 2015, and that got changed, surgery is no longer a requirement to compete in elite athletics either. So, so you know, surgery is is sort of separate from this conversation, but it, you bring up an interesting point that you know, now I'm very proud of my scars because I think that they show where I've been and and they also show possibility to other trans people and other specifically young people. Um, you know, when Nike showed my top surgery scars in the commercial, I thought that was a really really powerful moment because first it had never been done before, but also you know it is a it is a clear indication of my transness, right? Mm-hmm. So, and there are other reasons that people would have mastectomies, and so it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is trans if they've had their breasts removed. But in my case, it, it, it's a direct correlation. You, you, you mentioned that trans guys and trans men seem to, uh, you know, talk about it more. You know, I think for me, it was really that I waited so long to be able to run around with my shirt off in the summer (laughs) that as soon as I had top surgery, it was like the second I walked in my house in the dead of winter, my shirt was off. Like I just, you know, was, it was just so happy to be free from, from that, from, from having a chest, uh, having to wear bras and having to bind for the year before I had top surgery, which was extremely uncomfortable. Um, binding is compressing the breasts so that it uh, appears that I had a flatter chest mm-hmm. and they're tight and they're not easy to work out in and they're unsafe and they cause all sorts of issues. So um, I say they're unsafe, unsafe to work out in, but they're actually a life-saving device for many people. And so, you know, I was just really thrilled to be free. And at the same time, I also had to like, you know, sort of temper my desire to just post shirtless selfies all the time because uh while they do get a lot more likes it's not necessarily on brand so there you go (laughs) i want to ask you about when you started competing and you you transitioned you started competing more and more did you ever think that you would become this big advocate for a community for a growing community uh yes i actually did and it didn't i didn't initially but I made a very calculated decision in 2010 to come out. And part of me just wanted to, in, in my work and in sports and in all areas of my life, part of me just wanted to you know, move towns, get a different job, and get new friends and start over as the man that I knew that I was meant to be. And the other part of me saw a real opportunity for filling the gap and filling that space of being the person that I wish existed in the world, you know, if I would have seen a trans man competing with men, if I would have seen, you know, athletes 
who are transgender, who were competing in the gender with which they identify, I think that I would have a very different experience as a young person. And I think that I would have seen myself and understood myself a lot earlier had I seen that. And so, you know, I, I really labored over that decision of coming out publicly and chose to do it in the Advocate magazine in 2010. And I knew at that point that there was no turning back. Like, you know, once you come out on the internet, you only have to do that once. You are forever the transgender <laughs> athlete. And I, it was in such a unique position because there weren't other people who were publicly talking about doing what I was doing that I knew I, I would step into that role. And it was something that I became more comfortable with over time. Um, let me take a quick commercial break and then we'll come back. And then I really want to get into your advocacy work. All right. All right, we're back. So you start this process and what you've been able to accomplish and and what you what changes you've seen from you know coming out in the advocate magazine and then how does it go about how does the IOC involvement become a thing? Is that because of your duathlon uh, team membership or were you already planning on going after the IOC laws and rules? Yeah, so my sort of entry into policy work came as a result of my own experience of trying to figure out how to compete as a trans man. Just the organizations that I was trying to get into, um, the places that I was racing, and uh, organizations like USA Triathlon just didn't have policies on the books. And so you know, I wanted to make sure that I was doing it the right way, that I was following the rules. But quite simply, the rules did not exist at that time. And so I found myself messaging a lot of people, getting a lot of um, I don't knows, getting shuffled around. And I just saw how incredibly frustrating it was and how sort of violating it felt for me to have to out myself to so many people to get a lot of we don't know what to do with you style answers. And so I made transathlete.com in 2013 and started to collect trans athlete policies so that other people could find them very easily. And then I was able to use that sort of compilation of policies that I found to advocate for change in different organizations and to help them write their policies. The IOC really wasn't on my radar at that point, but when I was about to compete in the duathlon national championships, I, I realized and recognized that if I made Team USA, that I would be ineligible to compete in the world championship because they followed the IOC policy. So my uh, intention of challenging the IOC policy was really so that I could get to the starting line. But I, I recognized at the same time that it would have a profound impact on the ability of transgender athletes to compete moving forward, not only in duathlon, but any sport governed by the IOC and you know, would essentially pave the way for a trans Olympian to compete more authentically with less restrictions, including surgery. So what were the rules before then? Before yeah, you... so the the rules before, uh, well, the IOC policy is hormone-based, and so it goes by levels of testosterone. And at that time, there was a two-year wait period for any transgender woman and a one-year wait period for any trans man. And then the big thing that I was interested in challenging was the requirement for a full lower surgery, which was an internal and external gonadectomy. So someone essentially had to have bottom surgery in order to compete in any sport at the elite level that is governed by the IOC policy. Oh, really? Even for trans male? Yes. Yeah. 
So not every trans person has surgery, as I said. Uh, yeah. I don't think that having surgery is going to make one a faster athlete or a stronger athlete. And, you know, quite simply, it's, it's a human rights violation to force someone to modify their body in that way just to participate in sports. So that was really the, the root of my challenge. What was the, what was the whole process like? What how did you go about this making this, I, helping make this change? Yeah, so I had a I had a really great support team of folks around me, uh, people that I had met at the LGBT Sports Summit in you know earlier years. Uh, people, you know, Sid from Out Sports was a great connector for me, and uh, Helen Carroll from NCLR and several organizations that were doing advocacy work like this already were able to connect me to you know, just a huge, huge list of people who contributed in some way, whether it was talking me through uh, you know, suggestions of, of paths to take or connecting me to people. Um, I was connected with these great lawyers in Canada, and they took on my case pro bono. And you know, really, from that point, basically, it was, it was me telling my story to them and them really taking over. So Fortunately, I didn't have to go to a mediation. There was no in-person uh, anything for me. It was really, in my opinion, I think that they really just needed a name and a face of a person who could stand up and say, you know, this is wrong. Like, this policy just does not make sense. And I, I think once they, they had me in that position, that it was something that they had to face and had to change. And so how long did that change? It took a few years, right? Well, actually, no, it, it took uh, under a year. So I made Team USA in June of that year and instantly started uh, the process of, of figuring out, am I going to be able to compete? And you know, my teammates were booking the hotels and, and signing up for all the team activities and you know, sort of making their travel arrangements. And you know, months just kept ticking by. And really, it was um, December of that year where a decision was actually leaked on Outsports. But to that point, and I, I think that the decision had been made you know, weeks prior to that, um, that there was no announcement, there was no press release. It was really just something that they were sitting on and until it was leaked and then it quietly appeared on their website. So, um, you know, I, I guess the actual decision was made at a meeting uh, probably around November and it was leaked in December and on their website in January. So the whole thing was about a six-month process. They may have had, you know, sort of these meetings already planned, uh, but I, I don't think, I, well, I don't really know. Um, I know that my lawyers were involved, so. Do you think then for the IOC's rules, do you think that they're, I mean, that's all you need? Do you think any more changes need to happen? Or, because I know that the IAF with the Castor Semenya case is, really come up with some different rulings and i know the different sports organizations are really starting to to think about this and start to make some changes that probably aren't the best best decision for trans athletes and specifically yeah so you know when the policy changed it removed the requirement for surgery it lowered the wait time for transgender women from two years to one year and it made uh, no restriction for transgender men so a trans man can identify as a man and compete that day uh, in the male category with no weight. What happened with the IAAF is that they have now doubled, uh, uh, doubled, reduced, sorry, halved the amount of testosterone that a trans woman can have. 
which so the IAAF and uh, three or four other national governing bodies had a meeting to discuss uh, trans athletes in sport. Now, to be clear, Castor Semenya is not transgender. Right. Uh, yeah. So so she is a separate case, but she really is the focal point of a lot of these of the policy change that's happening in IAAF, which does then impact trans women. Um, and then we also have high school trans athletes. Um, Which who, I want to get into in a few minutes, for sure. Yeah, who run track and field. So, you know, track and running is central to the conversation around trans athletes and specifically trans women. You know, I think the, the policy changes that we are going to see, and I will say with confidence that there will be policy changes prior to Tokyo 2020 Olympics uh, for trans athletes. I just, I, I would have a hard time believing that they wouldn't do this just because of what happened with the IAAF and all of the controversy around trans athletes. Um, what we'll probably see is a reduction in the amount of testosterone a trans woman is allowed to have. I don't think that we will see um, policy changes around the participation of trans men because people are not concerned about trans men competing with men. Uh, you know, people don't think that we are a threat. People are not really worried about it. And I think that that's really what we're going to see very soon. And, you know, it's a very different conversation to talk about athletes in high school, like we're about to talk about, and talk about athletes at the, at the college level or at the elite level, um, talking about world championships and gold medals. So, you know, I think that's what makes this so complicated to talk about as a trans athlete is that there's not one universal policy and there's, you know, policies differ from state to state at the high school level. They differ from sport to sport at the elite level. And, you know, there are a lot of different policies out there. So this is a topic, obviously, that you're covering, uh, you know, pretty extensively now with, uh, with several episodes with trans athletes. But it's, it's something that's going to continue to be a focal point of conversation just because the, the science, the understanding, the research, the... Um, the data on it is evolving and changing. Um, I think we're just in a position where we don't have a lot of studies that we can rely on. Uh, what we what we what we're hearing is a lot of people's fears based on stereotypes, based on mm -hmm. misinformation or lack of information. And so people, you know, people say things about trans athletes like it's fact when it's it's just an opinion that they've formed because they've seen episodes of South Park or Family Guy uh, because they've heard transphobic things from friends or neighbors. Um, it, a lot of it is is really um, emotional for people. Yeah, emotional, the, the fear. I mean, it's just unreal what trans athletes and trans people in general have to deal with in day-to-day -day life. Um, yeah. I, I can't so imagine having to deal with that and i hate talking about race because i'm a white guy and i but for you being a white male athlete you probably even get an easier ride than someone who is um like andrea yearwood the high school track player from or track uh track and field athlete from connecticut would yeah. get no, we absolutely uh, should talk about race. You know, that is that is central to this conversation. And you're totally right. And not only did I transition and receive male privilege uh, and, you know, perceived straight male privilege because I'm married to a cisgender woman, uh, but also, you know, I my the, the level of my white privilege also has shown in the process of 
challenging the International Olympic Committee policy in terms of how easy it's been for me to access sport and also in how I've sort of flown under the radar in a lot of ways, you know, despite being now a six-time member of Team USA, two-time national champion, uh, sponsored by Nike. Like, I still fly under the radar, and I think a lot of that is because of my, you know, white male privilege. You know, the difference is I make Team USA and kind of get a shrug, and, you know, Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood, who are both uh, young girls of color, instantly they want to compete with the other girls on their team, and they are the targets of tweets from the president's son. So, you know, there, there's, there's a real, um, it's, it's rooted in fear of trans women, but also it is very closely tied to race. Uh, and, and we see this, you know, not just with trans people, but also with Castor Semenya, you mentioned before, you know, Castor is the target of this, of, because she's an exceptional athlete, um, and is masculine presenting. She is the target of questions about her gender, and and a lot of that is because she is because she's black. You know, yeah, we, and and so- honestly, uh, before we continue, I I think most people who listen to this know who Castor is, but she is a track and field athlete. I think she was in the Olympics in 2016. Mm-hmm. Grew up female. She's female. Yeah. So yeah, the naturally high testosterone levels. And for her to be attacked because of what some people might think she looks more masculine than others or because she's so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie Ledecky's uh, someone who gets brought up a lot, and I don't know if she's ever been asked about it, but she is someone who kicked ass in the Olympic pool in 2016. I mean, she was beating people by almost a full lap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is I, I bring up that that example all the time. Oh, that, okay. Sorry. That's no, um, no, no. That, that's great. That's that's my example. Um, so I, you know, Katie Ledecky in the 2016 Olympics beat other women by a full pool length. They were not even on the same TV screen with her when she finished, and no one questioned her, um, you know, her gender. No one questioned whether or not she was a cisgender woman. And so, you know, there is this double standard that, you know, Katie is thought of as, as a once in a lifetime athlete. And, and she certainly is, you know, a, an amazing talent, but Castor is as well. And because of her appearance and also because she's a person of color, she was targeted and attacked and questioned and is now in the situation. Let's focus on high school for a few minutes and we're coming out of time, coming mm-hmm. to almost an hour. So I want to wrap it up pretty quick for you. Mac Beggs was born female, trans male, um, and he was uh, very, he's a very talented wrestler currently at Life University on the wrestling team. Mac would get tweets about him, but they would misgender him. Mm-hmm. And they would, they would say basically, this is why you don't want trans athletes competing because w- they would show articles of, him being forced to, to wrestle the women, the girls mm-hmm. in high school. And it wasn't his choice at all. It was what the high school uh, governing body did to him. Yeah, so Mac's case was really interesting because Texas is one of several states in the United States that require that high school transgender athletes compete with the gender of whatever is on their birth certificate. 
So in Mac's case, he knew he was trans, he was an out trans boy, and he was taking testosterone, and they still said that he could not uh, wrestle with, with boys. And he wanted to switch categories, and they would not allow him. So he, he had two options. You know, His options were to compete with girls or to not compete. And, you know, I'm really proud of him for taking that step to say, like, you can't stop me from being an athlete. Uh, but he certainly was the target of a lot of controversy and a lot of discrimination and transphobic tweets and messages and stories. And you're absolutely right with the misgendering. You know, this is one of the forms of violence that people use against trans people is the intentional misgendering. Um, you know, invalidation of our identities. And so there were so many articles and, and also a lot of confusion. You know, there were, there were people who thought that Mac was assigned male at birth and was competing against girls. And, um, you know, there was all sorts of confusion. But either way, because he was successful as an athlete, because he won two state championships back to back, he really was the target of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, violent and transphobic uh, messages in in the media what do you think is because like i told you before we started recording high school athletes is where i really have confusion i i don't know what is right i don't know what is wrong you You already you already mentioned that one rule doesn't fit every situation is there one for high school athletes that you can think of Yeah, I think that what we should be focusing on at the youth level is participation Uh, across the board for all young people, cisgender, transgender, straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, all young people. The participation in sports has been declining over many years. And so there are fewer kids participating in sports today than there were when I was growing up. Of Of those kids, LGBTQ kids are half as likely as their straight or cisgender peers to participate in sports. And I think it's even fewer trans kids are participating in sports because the barriers that are in place right now are so great. You know, it's uh, issues with the coaches and acceptance from school districts and teammates. But even if you have the most accepting coach and and the best teammates in the world, you still have to deal with competitors and fans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's a lot of points of controversy for young trans athletes. Um, we have to remember that these are kids and they just want to compete with their peers and like like anybody else. So I think that the best policy at, at that level is to allow people to participate in accordance with their their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, trans girls are girls and they should be competing with girls. Trans boys are boys and they should be competing with boys. Okay. And, that, and that's simple to understand. Too. Yeah. And, you know, it's really, I mean, we have to think about what is sports for at that level, right? When we're talking about gold medals and we're talking about world championships and we're talking about, um, you know, college scholarships, that might be a little different. But at, at the high school level and below, you know, elementary, junior high, you know, middle school, all of that, Really, the goal is to to gain all of those great benefits that we know exist in participating in sport. It's connecting to others. It's it's making those uh, friendships and building trust with others, learning how to work with people who are different than you, um, goal setting and dedication and, and teamwork, all of those things that make people not only um, you know strong athletes, but also great global citizens 
you know, there's 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 a reason why financial institutions and high performing work environments target athletes as as potential employees. The skills that athletes gain from working on teams, you know, can't be matched anywhere else. And we want people to have those opportunities to connect, to move their body. You know, we're we're facing greater and greater uh, obesity rates in the United States, um, other health conditions. So there's something to be said just about moving your body. We're losing our phys ed classes in, in schools that don't have budgets. The first thing that gets cut is physical activity and the arts. And you know these are creative outlets. These are ways that people can um, improve their mental health, create uh, social connections, and there are psychological and um, physical benefits to it, obviously, as well. So it's really important that young people have the opportunity to play in a way that's affirming of their their identities. It totally makes sense. I'm thankful that you are who you are, that you have become an advocate because you're helping so many people, so many kids especially. Um, oh, thank you. As we come to the end, I want to talk about um, the Chris Mosher Project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that is something that you're doing with Nike? Yeah, so uh, Nike funded a documentary project about me. It's a it's a short documentary uh, called the Chris Moser Project that just sort of you know details a little bit about my path of you know becoming the athlete that I am today and how my gender identity played into that. And uh, it was actually just released, so people can see the whole film online right now. Where can they find that? Uh, it's on Nike's site. And okay. um, it's on Nike site. And also you can find it through my social media, which is uh, primarily Instagram and uh, also on Twitter and Facebook. All of my social media handles are at the Chris Mosier. That's M-O-S-I-E-R. So recently this year, I switched sports, which has been a really cool experience for me. Uh, I made Team USA in duathlon in April, and I switched over to try to compete in race walking Um uh, so I have a friend who is a race walker in Chicago, and he asked if I ever thought about doing it, and I said no. <laughs> I had not ever thought about doing it, but it was really cool to take on a new challenge. So I've raced uh, two races this year. I'm a two-time national champion, and I just qualified for the Olympic trials. In, really? Yeah, in the men's 50-kilometer uh, race walk, and so uh, I believe if I, as far as i know i'll be the first trans man to compete with men at the olympic trials um, maybe the first trans person uh first known trans person to compete in the gender with which they identify uh somebody mentioned that to me um but i'm super excited i'm going to the olympic trials in january and uh you know just really excited to open another door for elite athletes that is awesome chris congrats Hey, thank you. Um, where, where is that at? Where's that going to be at? It's going to be in Southern California. Oh, okay, cool. You are now my second race walker I've had on this podcast. <laughs> oh, really? That's amazing. I had, I had Tom Bosworth on. Oh, months, my months goodness. Uh, an icon. I'm going to go listen to the episode. Yeah. He's, uh, I don't know if I've brought it on Outsports yet, but yeah, it's out there and all. Um, yeah, so that's cool, though. That's awesome. Oh, that's great. What are you doing besides this? What, what's going on in your life? Are you pers- doing personal training still? 
Yeah, so I'm currently based out of Chicago, and it's been a great move for me because I'm more centrally located, and it's easier to fly to all the places that I travel to to do trainings and workshops and whatnot and speeches. Primarily, what I've been doing is giving a lot of speeches at colleges and universities, high schools, and organizations, you know, partly to talk about my journey as uh, they, they kind of classified as a barrier-breaking athlete, um, but also, you know, talk about the lessons that I've learned along the way about inclusive leadership and ally building, and also about healthy masculinity and sort of what that looks like in a, in a really interesting way of, uh, I have created my own masculinity, you know, my own version of the man that I want to be. So I've been talking a lot about that, uh, still doing policy work right now and mentoring a lot of young transgender athletes which is really amazing. It's one of my sort of greatest joys is to see other people have the ability to be themselves in sport and um, you know, know that, that, that I had a small part in helping to make that happen. That's cool. It's actually perfect because the way I always wrap up my podcast is um, I ask if there was a way to go back in time and you can go talk to your you know, 12, 13-year-old self or maybe – if you weren't transitioning then or you weren't thinking about that, just some random kid who's going through that, what's that one thing that you could tell them to help them? I think, you know, if, if I could say anything to myself, which would, which would apply to anybody else, would be uh, you know, at that time, don't worry about what other people think because other people don't have to live your life. You do. And I just think about my experience. I put so much thought and effort and, and like, uh, energy into worrying about what other people thought about me and had i focused a little bit more on what would make me happy and me successful i think that i would have you know had a had a very different life maybe an accelerated path to the person that i am today cool chris thanks again so much for coming on i have enjoyed our conversation yeah thank you for having me i appreciate it Thank you once again, Chris, for coming and talking to me on my podcast. I had a lot of fun talking with him. Next week is my my final episode of the year. I will be taking a couple weeks off Christmas and New Year's week and coming back starting fresh in the new year. Next week's guest is Daniel Trainer from Same Team. Same Team is obviously on this podcast network. So I hope you all have a great week. Come back for next Tuesday for a very different episode than what you're used to as Daniel and I talk. Have a good one.